Thank you, Adam. That, uh, it's West Connect. West Connect. So if you're in Jacksonville, it's West Connect Group. Don't look for West Connect Group. It's not going to be there. Yeah. <laughs> That's, uh, very good. I tell you, has it been an awesome conference? Gosh, it is unbelievable. Uh, wow. Yeah. I was a little late on signing up to go horseback riding, and I went up to Adam, and he said, Lon, I've got you hooked up. So he takes me, gosh, it's about a 35, 40-mile trip to go horseback riding. Well, as soon as I get on this horse, it just takes off at a full gallop. I mean, I didn't have the reins in my hand. And, and I was reaching over to try to get the reins, and I ended up starting to slide off. And my ankle got caught in the stirrup, and I ended up falling all the way off of this thing, running full speed. It was crazy. And I, I, I got to tell you, that, that thing would have drugged me to death. That man from Walmart had come out and unplugged it. <laughs> frightening. Frightening. I'm, uh, I'm very, very happy to be here. I want to I thank the committee. I thank, uh, thank Barton and Adam. Uh, they kept in close contact with us last year. Uh, it's been exciting for uh, to be able to come out. I've never been to Kentucky, so it's a, it's an awesome place. Beautiful time of year, awesome place to visit. Thank you so much. I want to thank uh, Mickey on on Friday night. You gave an awesome talk. Um, Doug Saturday morning marginal. <laughs> <laughs> Me and Doug are good friends. Uh, <laughs> I can be truthful with him. No, you did a you did an awesome job. Um, and Linda this afternoon, uh, Alan on speaker, and I'm looking forward to hear, hearing uh, Ed, right, T tomorrow morning. Um, well, you know, I always pray before I, I kind of meditate and pray before I get up and, and share my story, and I just ask God to kind of clear my mind. And uh, I'm sorry for you guys, my prayers were answered. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> um well, I'm an alcoholic. My name is Lon, and it's truly by God's grace the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, people like you in, in rooms just like this. Um, I have not found it necessary to no have. I harm myself or anyone else by taking a drink of alcohol or any minor chemicals since October the 8th of 1984, and I'm grateful for that. And it's because I got involved with a group of people that were very 12-step oriented, very big book oriented. Um, I, I got a sponsor, and it's definitely thanked his sponsorship. I, I still have a sponsor today. I'm active in Alcoholics Anonymous today. Um, I got to tell you, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I wasn't so excited when I got here. I was 22 years old in 1984, and I looked around the rooms. There's a lot of old people like me in these rooms, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, my life is over. Uh, and thank goodness it was. <laughs> thank goodness. Uh, the women pinch me on the cheek and say, oh, it's just so nice having somebody so young come in. Oh, gosh. Gosh. And there's this guy, Jerry. Jerry, for the longest time, I, the longest time I didn't know it, he had four teeth. He's like, uh, maybe five, like three on the top and two on the bottom. But when he put his clothes in his mouth and he smiled, and looked at it like he had a whole set. Um, but he was one of those guys that just looked like an alcoholic. I mean, he was always unshaven, um, and he just looked like an alcoholic. And uh, I got to say, he's one of the first guys I saw God in. I mean, somebody I would never expect, um, but he was just, gosh, what a loving and 
caring and, and awesome guy he was. You know, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says what's well, supposed to share in a general way what it used to be like, what happened, and what it's like today. And uh, I was born in a normal family. Uh, both of my parents were alcoholics. Uh, <laughs> I had uh, I had three sisters, um, and a little later I'll get into it. Uh, one ended up ended up uh, dying in a car accident, getting killed in a car accident when I was five, and she was six. Um, so, kind of after that, uh, I had two sisters. They were like Jesus freaks. My dad was an atheist, and my mom was a was an alcoholic, fallen Protestant. And so I kind of had the best of everything right there at the house. <laughs> I mean, I was. And kind of whoever uh, or whatever I kind of felt like, that's who I hung around that day. Um, I, I knew there was a God. I knew there was a God when I was l- real young. I saw him working in my sister's life. Uh, but when, when I was around my dad, I I used to agree with him saying there wasn't no God. Um, so I kind of grew up being this little people pleaser guy. Um, and I was a, that chameleon that just kind of changed with whoever I was around. Um you know, I, the first tragic thing that happened, and, and I got to tell you, there's there some things that happened in my childhood that, that really no child should ever go through. And, but I don't think those things made me an alcoholic. But I know what happened is when I became at the ripe old, old age to drink the first time, um, alcohol became a solution for all my problems. And it was just, it was, it was instant for me. I mean, I loved what alcohol did. But I drank it and I, I could just feel that warmness going down and, and it just kind of hit the stomach, and and it tasted like more. I mean, from my very first sip, it tasted like more. I always wanted to drink more. And I got to tell you, I'm a blackout drinker. I mean, I had blackouts when they first come out. Um, I didn't know. I didn't know there were really blackouts. I didn't know that I wasn't functioning. I thought I drank so much I passed out. Is what I thought happened. But then I would have friends tell me about a lot of activity that happened the night before when I thought I'd passed out and I was involved in a lot of it. And, and, and I realized early on, quite young, I, I realized that it's real important you wake up in the morning, you ask kind of everybody what went on instead of just thinking you fell asleep because there was a lot of activity that I was involved in uh, during my drinking. And I didn't know they were called blackouts until I sobered up in Alcoholics Anonymous. And when they told me about it, I was like, I have though. I've, I've had them a long time. I've had those things a long time, but I didn't know what they were. Um, you know, my my dad was a was a in the Marine Corps, twenty year Marine, and we moved around. Um, uh, I guess from we came from California, moved to Jacksonville when I was like two, and then th- there was a short period of time we moved to um, Beaufort, South Carolina, and we moved back to Jacksonville, um, and so. There wasn't, I wasn't around, I mean, it seemed like every, up until I was 10, 12 years old, every few years we were moving. And so I, you, don't, you don't develop a lot of close friendships. Uh, and that's just kind of how I grew up. Um, but every time I go to these new schools, I felt, I felt insecure. I felt, uh, I felt less than. I didn't know that then. I mean, I knew that then, but I didn't know that it was caused by alcoholism then, or I believe that it, it was, I had the alcoholic personality before I even took a drink, and, you know, I was living in Jacksonville, I, I shared with you, I had a, a sister, me and her were real close, Lisa, 
I was five and she was six. She was 13 months older than me and we just did everything together. And uh, my dad had had uh, taken us kids out. My mom was working and taking his kids out and he had this little Renault car and uh, the car died. And my dad told me and my two older sisters get out and push the car. And uh, it's the first time I ever defied my dad. I, I looked at him and I said no. And I was crying. I don't know why I was crying. I was afraid. I don't know why I was afraid, but I said no. And you, and you just didn't say no to my dad. He turned around and backhanded me. He said, get out and push the car. And I told him no. And he looked at my sister, Lisa, and he said, get out and push the car. And so Lisa got out and pushed the car. And my two oldest sisters, Linda and Lori, were covering the, the back lights. And it was getting towards dusk, dark. And Lisa was in the middle. And a guy came up from behind. He hit the car. They were trying to push start it. And uh, I was the only one that was kind of awake during the whole thing. And, and I, I remember getting out the window, and, and there were a lot of people around my sister Linda and a lot of people around my sister Lori. And I looked at Lisa, and nobody was around her. And I remember going over by her and kind of brushing the hair from her face um, and just really feeling guilty, really feeling like it should have been me, you know, that, uh, that I, was, I should have been the one. Um, so, so that at the age of five, you take on a guilt that's not even yours and, and, and you own it and, it and it changes your life. Um, but I know that I walked away from, uh, from that accident, not feeling nothing, just, just feeling dead inside. Um, you know, the next thing that, that happened to me is, uh, my mom and dad had kind of started drinking at this time. I was probably 10 years old. And I was walking home from school, and uh, walking home from school, there was these woods you cut through. My, my parents told me never to cut through the woods, and then that's one day I particularly, I, I did. I cut through the woods to get home quicker. And uh, there was a guy in there, he, he beat the crap out of me. And uh, um, I don't know, I was knocked unconscious, but I know that I woke up, uh, I woke up naked. I, uh, I know that I dressed myself, and I walked home like nothing ever happened. And when I got home, I, my dad asked me what had happened, and I told him I got a fight in school. And uh, he felt like his job was to make me tough so I didn't have to go through that stuff. But it was just one of those things that very, you get very shame-based. And, uh, you know, there's a difference between shame and guilt. Shame is, guilt is I made a mistake. Shame is I am a mistake. But one of the things the steps do is it gets us in the process for moving shame to guilt. And guilt you can do something about. And, and gosh, I was so blessed to get into Alcoholics Anonymous and really work through a lot of this stuff. And I'd like to tell you, I came in just working through this stuff. But I was several years sober before I got into any of that. Um, but i got to tell you, at, the, at probably 10 or 11 years old, my dad was doing a lot of drinking, and, and he started asking me to get his beer for him. So I'd get his beer, and I'd take a couple swigs. And a couple swigs isn't much off a drink. Uh, but he drank a lot of beer. <laughs> then I got a lot of beers for him. So I would start feeling stuff. And I kind of liked what alcohol did for me. My mom, she didn't drink for the longest time. But when she started drinking, she was one of them instant alcoholics. I mean, she drank for uh, really a relatively short period of time. But when she started drinking, she was. Uh, but because of her drinking, my mom and dad divorced. And uh, then I, I, my dad moved to he moved away and eventually went to Texas, but I was living in Jackson, Florida with my mom. And um, growing up in an alcoholic family, you learn that you don't bring your friends home from school because you don't know if mom's going to be passed out in the front yard or passed out inside the, on the kitchen floor or with her face laying in the mashed potatoes at the table. Um, and you knew you just didn't bring people home until you kind of checked out what was going on. Um, and at first I used to hate the way she drank. I, I would take her 
she drank vodka because, like Doug said, you can't smell it. And I used to, I used to pour the vodka down the down the uh, sink, and then I'd fill it up with water. <laughs> She'd come home the next day, and after about four drinks, she's pissed. Um, and I thought, man, what a waste. So I started pouring into a little flask of my own, and I kind of put it up in the closet, and then, and I kind of started drinking drinking uh, some of her stolen liquor. Um, I, I know this is Alcoholics Anonymous, but I did smoke a lot of non-inherent form of marijuana in high school. Um, a lot of it. Um, you know, getting out of high school, I knew I had to do something. I didn't know what I was going to do. My dad was a 20-year Marine, and I thought, that's what I'm doing. I'm going to join the Marine Corps. And uh, So I went down and talked to a recruiter, and he showed me these cool videotapes of the Marine Corps. Oh, man, I thought, man, that's what I want to be. And I joined the Marine Corps, and I got into boot camp. And I'm telling you, it's nothing like those tapes. <laughs> those, those guys were not nice. I mean, they were yelling and screaming. I thought, man, if I want this, I'd have stayed home. <laughs> but uh, that's probably the longest period of time that I, uh, I had been without drinking. I did graduate from high school. Um, totally unscarred by education. I don't know how I made it through, but I, I did get through, joined the Marine Corps, and I like I liked the service. I like the service because, because you move around a lot. And I don't know about you, you know, Dorothy from the Wizard of Oz, she always wanted to go back to Kansas. Man, I always wanted to get away. <laughs> I did not want to click my heels and go back. I wanted to go somewhere else. Um, and so I like the service for having to move around a lot like that. So I, I get out of boot camp, I go to school and in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, and then I went to school in, um, I believe it was in North Carolina, and everywhere I went, I started start drinking, and when I started drinking, um, I never got in trouble when I was at work, it was always when I was drinking, and um, by the time things started getting tight in, in North Carolina, I got orders to, to, to Cherry Point, or anytime it got, got tight in Cherry Point, I got orders to the West Coast, uh, so every time I think, man, it's going to be different when I go. It's going to be different. And every time I'd go somewhere different, I'd do the same thing. I didn't never put, I did not put two and two together. I really did not. I'm not very smart. Um, like Doug says, I can lift heavy things. <laughs> I'm just kidding. He doesn't say that. Um, so I remember getting orders to uh, Okinawa, Japan. And I remember thinking, that's what i got to do. I've got to get out of the country. I have all these problems, you know. I, I, I go to I go to Japan, and, and the same thing started happening. Japan's a little bit different. Um, Japan, gosh, when I was in Okinawa, they had what they call binjo ditches, and so here we call them sewers, and they're usually covered up. And in in Japan, they, in Okinawa, they were binjo ditches. They weren't covered up. That's kind of where everybody's sewage ran through. And uh, I would go go down to Gate Two and BC Street, and I do a lot of party, go to blackout, and the Marine Corps really frowns when you lose your ID card a lot. <laughs> something about NAS security or something. Um, but I would always end up in these benjo ditches, passed out. And I got to tell you, no one is willing to help when you're in a benjo ditch, passed out. But somebody does. So somebody, some. I guess that's. What, I think they just stole my wallet when I was passed out. I really don't think it was no communist conspiracy, you know, to try to do anything to the country. Uh, but after about a third or fourth time, they're kind of saying, hey, man, something's going on. But 
I didn't get in trouble again while I was at work. It was always when I was off duty. My medical record was getting really thick because I was I was going to the hospital all the time uh, for being passed out and have to be cleaned up. Um, you know, I went to I went to the Philippines. Um, Operation, uh, I went to Korea, I'm sorry, in Operation Team Spirit. Then we had a 24-hour pass in the Philippines. And uh, I had a 96-hour pass, I'm sorry. So I was in, in the Philippines on a 96-hour pass, and me and a buddy of mine started drinking. And, uh, of course, he drank like I drank, because that's the kind of people like I drank with. And both of us went to a blackout, and we came to, and we didn't, you know, we were in the Philippines. And Filipino people look, well, well they look Filipino. <laughs> But when we came to, there were not really many Filipino people looking people. <laughs> and so we were trying to figure out, and they had these accents. And finally, we went up to a buddy of mine. We went up to somebody and said, hey, where are we? And they said, Richardson. We said, Richardson what? They said, Richardson, Australia. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I freaked out. He freaked out. We both freaked out. We're thinking, how do we get back? How do we, how do we get here? But how do we get back? I mean, I got a 96-hour pass to get back. And so we asked the guy, how do we get back? And he tells us where the base is. And we asked them, how, how do we get back to the Philippines? They just go through the same procedure you did in getting here. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I know telling where I'll end up if I start drinking. But we ended up getting back to the to the Philippines um, and really didn't get in any trouble about it. We they, back then, you, you had a ninety six hour pass. It's very much different than today. You could kind of catch a military hop wherever you wanted to catch, as long as you were back when you needed to be back. And uh, and that's a long flight from the Philippines to Australia. It's <laughs> a long flight back, uh, but we made it. Um, so I, I'm back in uh, back in uh, Okinawa and. Uh, but, you know, by this time, the depression and the loneliness of, of, of the alcoholic mind was just getting embedded in me. I would drink, and I would just get so depressed and so depressed. And I, I was a I was a lance corporal. I was drinking with a staff sergeant, which is like a big no no. If you're in the military, non NCOs don't drink with NCOs. But I was drinking with a staff sergeant at his barracks. Up at his barracks, he's got a second floor, and we're in his room drinking. I only had about a six pack, but I came out, and the sec he lived on the second deck, so I came out of the second deck, and I'm looking across the flight line. I was a jet, jet engine mechanic on helicopters. I'm looking across the flight line, and I got to tell you, it's at night, and I feel like the wind's just blowing right through me. I mean, I just want to die. Now behind me, there was a bicycle, and this bicycle had a bungee cord wrapped around it, and so I took the bungee cord off the bicycle. And I put one end around the rail, and I put the other end around my neck. And I remember thinking, this is it. Now, I got an Alcoholics Anonymous. I told people that I jumped off, because that sounds pretty dramatic. But I really eased myself down. Um, <laughs> and I eased myself kind of slowly, because I thought, man, if this thing breaks, I can hurt myself. I mean, <laughs> I want to die. I don't want to hurt. So I kind of I eased myself all the way down. You know, this is in the early 80s. I think it might have started bungee jumping. I think that came after that. <laughs> I understand they do it different. But anyway, so I get all the way down. The, you know, you can stretch a bungee cord so tight and they don't stretch no more. Well, that's how tight this thing was stretched. But the bad thing is my tiptoes are on the bottom. And so they're, I'm kind of like that. 
But you know, you can touch them, stretch them so tight they won't stretch, but I couldn't even get enough slack to get this thing off of my neck. Because by this time, as I'm standing there, I'm thinking maybe it's not that bad. <laughs> so I'm trying to get enough slack and jumping up and down, trying to get enough slack to get this hook off because it's pinching the crap out of my neck. And as I'm doing that, this staff sergeant walk out of the bottom deck. And he looks at me, he said, what are you doing? I mean, what do you say? You know? We're just hanging around. Um, but at that time, the Marine Corps decided I had a problem, probably had a problem with alcohol, and they were going to send me to treatment. So they sent me to Long Beach, California. So I traveled all the way to Long Beach, California. That's where Betty Ford sobered up. Um, at the Naval Regional Medical Center in Long Beach, California. Uh, I knew they'd made a horrific mistake because only 20 years old, the drinking age of California was 21. And I thought, man, uh, but they said something. They said, fake it till you make it. And I didn't believe I was that alcoholic. I just had to get the heat off. And so I faked it till I made it. But I got to tell you, on the way to California, Back in those days, the military, they put your name in a computer, and wherever your name came up, that's where you went to treatment. They had a treatment center in Okinawa. But my name came up in California. So they fly me to California. Well, I had to go through detox. So I went through detox three days in, uh, in, in, in Okinawa. And then we fly out, we have plane problems, and we land in the Philippines. <laughs> I'm kind of excited. <laughs> Looking forward to seeing Australia again. <laughs> but I'd already went through detox, and they, they stuck me in this nut ward. And it wasn't like a mild depression nut ward. This was like a seriously ill people nut ward. But it, was, it wasn't that bad. It was co-ed. Um, but I, I, I mean, I got there, but they took away all my clothes, and they gave me these paper clothes and paper, paper belt, paper shoes, and paper bathrobe. <laughs> So everybody's styling it. Um, the alcoholics, we got to stay up late and watch TV. So I'm first night in there, I'm taking advantage of my privileges. I'm like watching Marcus Welby or something, I don't know. And I was the only one in the in the day room watching TV. And this nut, she come walking in. <laughs> and she stands right in front of the TV and she starts undressing. Um, she gets down to nothing but a smile. And, and one of these orderlies come by and he looks at me. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm watching Marcus Welby. <laughs> he says, she does this all the time. Why don't you get somebody? And I'm thinking, man, I'm alcoholic. I ain't nuts. <laughs> they gave her some shot of something, shuffled her off to her room. Well, there was some other weird stuff. I was there three days. There was some weird stuff that went on. These guys, they had a pool table. They had a rec room and pool table. And... and but they took the balls away because the nuts throw the balls at each other, I guess. And But I watched these guys play pool like for two hours. The same guy kept winning. And I didn't have the heart to tell the other guy, you're never going to win, buddy. But I, so I get through treatment. Um, I, I After treatment, I couldn't believe they sent me back to my problem. Japan, Okinawa. It's like, you got to be kidding me. So I go there, and I know they told me to go to those AA, AA meetings, AAA, AAA, whatever. I was supposed to go to some meetings when I got. So they gave me some and abuse, too. They told me, they gave it to my gunny, my gunny sergeant. So I have to get morning every, see the gunny every morning to 
open my mouth for him to put an anti-abuse pill in. So I did that for a period of time. I went to meetings once a month, whether I need it or not. I went to meetings downtown where they spoke all Japanese. I didn't speak any. I didn't really buy that language of the heart crap. Finally, the gunny says, hey, why don't you just continue to take the anabuse? And I said, no problem. And I was probably not drinking for about six months. Um, and, and one morning I got up, and I was taking the anabuse. But one morning I got up, it was a Friday. I said, you know, I'm not going to take the anabuse today because I'm going to go out. I'm going to get a 12-pack. It's probably a phase I was going through. I'm going to get a 12-pack and go to the seawall. And uh, I get a 12-pack, go to the seawall, and I start drinking. Oh, my gosh, I started breaking out of these red blotches. I mean... <laughs> They're like, I'm with a buddy of mine, and he's like freaking out. Like, oh, what is going on? I don't see my face. I just see it on my arm. My whole face is red. Look like I'm going to die. Um, and I start sweating, and I start throwing up. I'm thinking everything's back to normal, because that's kind of the way I drank. But uh, I got really, really sick. And uh, I found out you've got to give that stuff a couple weeks to, to get out of your system. And uh, that's what I did. I started drinking again. The doctor they sent me to treatment, saw me in the beer gardens drinking a couple, I don't know, a month later. And he called me in his office. He said, I'm going to put you in for administrative discharge, alcohol abuse. I thought, that's what i got to do. I'm going to get in the Marine Corps. I didn't have any of these problems that I got in the Marine Corps. So I get out of the Marine Corps, get kicked out of the Marine Corps, um, come back to Jacksonville, Florida with my mom. Well, my mom is sober and alcoholics anonymous. And she asked me if I want to go to those meetings. I don't need to go to those meetings. I wasn't drinking. I know I wasn't drinking. I'd stop drinking. Out of the Marine Corps, I could smoke marijuana freely. <laughs> or not freely, but without the Marine Corps finding out about it. <clears throat> and uh, But she was always asking me if I want to go to them. She'd leave literature all the time for me. She was uh, untreated Al-Anon. <laughs> And I lived there about six months, and then I moved to Texas. But, you know, when I lived there, what I remember is, you know, my mom was the first big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that I read. I saw the change in her life. I didn't want it. I was glad for her. But I didn't think I was alcoholic. I didn't think I needed it. I didn't want it. My dad calls me in Texas, asks me if I want to go to, uh, want to ask me if I want a job there. And I said, well, yeah, need a job working in a factory. But it was a factory working in, we made beer bottle caps. Gosh, for all the different beer companies. Um, so I, I had to, I moved there, I had to start drinking for job security. <laughs> Started drinking bottled beer all the time. And, and gosh, lo and behold, the same thing started happening. Gosh, the same thing, blackouts. I mean, I got to tell you, the, the worst thing with blackouts for me was coming to driving, not knowing where I was. I mean, having to stop and ask directions. Um, don't know if you're 10 miles from home or you don't know if you're 500 miles from home. Um, I didn't get any DUIs. DWIs, I did, did not get. I, mostly because I was in a small town. I used to drink in this place called Grand Prairie, Texas. Uh, so I lived in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, Grand Prairie, Texas. It's kind of the armpit of the Metroplex, okay? Uh, so the insanity from the disease in which I suffer is, is well described in my following story. On Friday nights, I would get paid. I would go to the strip in Grand Prairie, Texas, same bar, same bouncer, same cop on duty there. 
I would drink. Last call, you always buy two drinks at last call. I bought two drinks. They would let me drink one drink, and then they'd try to say, I got to go. And I would get in an argument with the bouncer. I would get in an argument with the cop. I usually got his mother involved in the conversation. <laughs> and then I ended up going to jail. It never occurred to me I need to drink somewhere else. <laughs> Thought never crossed my mind. But I know when I got went into Grand Prairie, Texas, the jail, I got charged with public intoxication. Well, public intoxication is a $28.50 fine. That's not a high price. So before I went drinking the next week, I stuck 30 bucks back in my wallet. And I just laughed and laughed because I knew I had one over on them. That was my solution. And I've been put in the Grand Prairie Jail probably, I don't know, 15, 25 times for public intoxication. But I was laughing and laughing because four hours later, I'd pull out the 20 or 30 bucks and, and bail myself out. Or It was a fine, actually. You know, I think every alcoholic comes to a point, and I don't, I don't know what happened. I, I don't know. There were a lot of things that were the bottom. I don't know what the bottom was, but there were a lot of things that were the bottom. But I, I came to, I believe I came to on a, uh, went out on a Saturday night, came to on a Sunday morning, a headache. I, uh, one of those times I went to a blackout, had to figure out what went on. And it was a lot easier than most nights, even though there was nobody around to tell me what went on. But I woke up and my face, I had black eyes, my lips were all bloodied and, and cut, and my ribs were broken. And I came to the conclusion I got in a fight. And I probably lost that fight. <laughs> but as bad as the physical pain was, the emotional pain inside was just killing me. <clears throat> And back then, we didn't have cell phones. I had pay phones. I didn't have a phone in my house. But I went out to uh, my apartment complex, and I had a quarter, and I called my mom. Uh, actually, I didn't even have a quarter. I called my mom Collect in Jacksonville, Florida. Called her Collect, and it was pouring down rain outside, and I was dying inside. I was crying. And I said, I don't know what to do. I told her what happened. I just said, I don't know what to do. And she said, you know, Lon, I can't help you. If you want help, you need to call AA. And she hung up. I thought, whatever happened to we care? <laughs> yeah. I did not call Alcoholics Anonymous that day. Um, I called a, that a, that a Monday. And I went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, October 8, 1984. And there was probably six, eight people there. It wasn't a big meeting. And we're looking around and thinking, man, life is over. This is it. You know, when you come in Alcoholics Anonymous, when I came in, they told me a lot of things, a lot of stuff that's not in that big book. They told me to get one of those blue books. They said, it's real important to get one of these blue books. And they used to say, hey, if you can't afford one, steal it, because we got a step later on you can work that out with. But it's important you get one of these books. Um, and so I did. I, I bought one of those books. I told me to get a sponsor. And, and uh, for me, a sponsor was kind of the guy that came in after the war was over to bayonet the wounded, <laughs> you know. I mean, those guys were not nice. Man, he, this guy was not nice at all. I was telling, I think it was, I was telling somebody today, you know, they, you know, we were, one, one meeting we were reading and we were talking to the big book about boring, stupid, and glum. 
And my sponsor said, don't let everybody tell you either that you're not, um, or that you're boring or glum, because you're not. And I felt really good about that until about 20 minutes later, I realized he didn't even mention anything about stupid. <laughs> Another thing went in the book, they told me to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. I thought that was an overkill. But if you're new, I, did, I probably went to 150 meetings in 90 days. But I got to tell you, if you're new, that sounds real demanding when you come in Alcoholics Anonymous. And the longer you're sober, it's not near as demanding. Because after the 90 meetings in 90 days, all you got to do is go to 30 meetings in 30 days. And then after that, you do like a meeting every day. <laughs> so the longer you stay sober, the less demanding it is. So don't, don't let that frighten you off. Frighten me for a while. But I remember I was going about two weeks and I realized, God, they're talking like a meeting every day. <laughs> you know, um, and you know they, they, they say things like, oh, if you want what we have. I didn't know if I wanted what you had. I didn't even know what you had. <laughs> I mean, I, I knew that I didn't want what I had. And I knew I was willing to do anything to not have it anymore. Thank God I got a sponsor that was into the book. He was into the steps and he was into service. And I got to tell you, service saved my life. You know, I wrote a, I, I, I wore a shirt today that says the herd. And it says, stay in the middle on a sleeve. And that's what I learned early in Alcoholics Anonymous. You got to get in the middle of the herd. You got to get in the middle of the herd. Because when you get on the outside fringes, you get picked off. You know, in Alcoholics Anonymous, there's a lot of things that they they uh, they kind of try to guide and direct me, and uh, in, in a way, I've got a lot of sponsors I work with today, and you tell them you give them suggestions, and I'm like, oh, I don't know that I want to do that. When I was sober, I didn't know that I had a choice. <laughs> I really didn't. I didn't think they told me to do something. I did it. I didn't question it. I did it because I didn't want what I had. Matter of fact, I would try to share in meetings when I first, the first three months in meetings. Lon, you don't need to talk. You don't have what we want. <laughs> My sponsor would tell me, son, your disease is a lot stronger than our recovery. <laughs> yeah. You need to sit and listen. And then once they allowed me to talk, they said, he said, you can only talk on a step that you've already worked if, they, if, they, if the meeting is a step meeting. I got to tell you, that counted me out. seemed like the rest of that, you know. <laughs> but it encouraged me to work the steps because I was sure you guys were eager to hear my, my vast knowledge. <laughs> you know, I was probably about two or three weeks sober and my sponsor said, hey, on Friday night, said, we have a, we, we go out at Friday nights after the meeting. I said, what do you do? He said, I'm not going to tell you. Just be here Friday night, and we're going to go out after the meeting. Man, you'll have a ball. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I'm 22 years old, Friday night. What's going to happen? Of course, I'm looking at the meeting thinking, I don't know that I want anything to happen. Because there's like nobody. The closest one my age is like 40 years old. So we go to the meeting, and after the meeting, I was like, all right, what do we do? He said, 
we all get together and go to Denny's. <laughs> oh, well, don't know if I can take much more of this. They told me we had the meeting after the meeting. Gosh. I don't think I missed one of those meetings for the next three or four months. That's where I learned about Alcoholics Anonymous. That's where I had a lot of different old timers sharing with me the things that they did when they got sober and the th things they, they worked through, the things they needed to do. Gosh, I, I, got, I got to where I love those meetings. I love talking to those people, drinking coffee till as late as I could, till it was as late as I could stay up. Um, I was probably about, you know, they tell you, my sponsor told me, and I'm single, believe me, at my group there wasn't a lot of, when I first got sober there was nobody. After I was sober five or six months, every now and then you see a younger girl kind of come in. Um, as a matter of fact, I, I didn't even know there were other groups for a long time. I mean, my sponsor, I, I went to an 11 o'clock meeting. I go to the meeting, and nobody's there with a key. It's a Saturday morning. We got a pay phone right there where the group is. I call my sponsor. You tell me to go to 90 meetings in 90 days, nobody even shows up with a key. How do you expect me to go to a meeting when nobody even shows up? And he said, Lon, there's, there's more than one meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in Arlington, Texas. I said, really? <laughs> he said, yeah. As a matter of fact, they, they, he gave me directions about four or Six blocks away was another meeting. I said, oh. He said, why don't you try going to that meeting? I went to that meeting. It already started. It wasn't like a meeting I'd been to before. I mean, I looked around. There kind of a crosstalk going around. I found out later it was a group conscience. Okay? I had no idea what a group conscience was. I thought it was a regular meeting. But they're talking about this electric bill at the group conscience. I thought, wow. And a lot of crosstalking. A lot of nastiness. Some little old guy come up and, or some big old guy come up to the lights and they were talking about the light bill, so he shut off the lights right in the middle of the group conference. And some little old boy, little old man come up and turned on the lights. And that big old boy shut them off, and the little guy turned them on. The big old guy went to shut them off again, that little guy went, bam, and hit him run the mouth. Oh, man. I like this. I got to tell you, if you're new, that doesn't happen to a lot of group consciences. <laughs> but if you don't go to them, you're going to miss it. <laughs> I tell you, when my group had group consciences, I wasn't about to miss it. I was going to be there because I'd seen that stuff. I knew, I knew what could happen. I hadn't missed too many in, in 38 years. <laughs> But my sponsor got me involved in service. They got me involved in the district. We started taking me to a place called the Union Gospel Mission. Uh, there was this lady, I was probably 20, well, I was just turned maybe 23 by this time. And this lady was probably 58. And, uh, and she became a member of our home group. Um, but we started taking me to the Union Gospel, meetings to the Union Gospel Mission. And she had got out of the Union Gospel Mission and she became a member of our home group. And uh, me and her became really good friends in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, as a matter of fact, today she in one of the uh, 
the books, The Best of the Grapevine, her stories in the book, The Best of the Grapevine. And she sent me a copy of it after I'd moved away. She's since passed on, but her name was Nell Spivey. And, and uh, I would have never known that a 23-year-old could be best friends with a, I don't know, she had to been 57 or 58 at the time when she sobered up. But she's an amazing woman, just a, a beautiful person. Um, so I did, I got involved in the area. I got involved in the district. I got involved in the area. I, became, I got involved before with young people. So I was real involved in young people's groups. Um, they had a conference in Lake Whitney, Texas, where people from all over Texas would come to this conference. About 500 young people would come to this conference. We'd have that conference every three months. Um, and so every three months, I got to see people from all over the state of Texas, it was just amazing. I just jumped in. I jumped in with both feet. I loved Alcoholics Anonymous. The more I got involved in, the more I loved it. Um, and and when you're involved in service, when you're involved in the district, when you're involved in area, a lot of people get to know you. And and it's not because I was special or anything. Because I attended meetings. The people I would introduce myself, and I was uh, I, I would I would learn their names, and I would get to know people. And and so in the over a period of years in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, there are a lot of people that I knew at different groups. So I could go to different groups. There's 400 groups a day when I was sober then in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I could go to just about any group, and I knew somebody. I knew somebody because I met him at the area or because I met him at the district. or you know. And, and I remember just thinking, wow, wow, to be able to walk onto a group of people that you feel like you don't know and you know somebody there. you know, And you actually probably even had good conversations. You'd become real good friends with that person. It was amazing to me. Um, gosh, I remember, I, but I, I was coming up on a year of sobriety, and I don't know, you know, they tell you to stay out of a relationship for a year. I don't know what was supposed to happen in a year, and it wasn't written in the book. I didn't find that out till later. <laughs> but if you get one of those books, read it. So if they tell you something, it's in the book, or it's not in the book, you can say it's not in the book. <laughs> I wasn't that smart back then. But I'm thinking a year sober, she's going to show up. I'm a year sober and she ain't around. I'm a year sober and I asked my sponsor, I said, well, where is she? And he said, well, God's getting her ready. Well, that's a crappy way out. <laughs> so I was two years sober, and I came up to him and said, well, God, where is she? He said, well, God's getting her ready. Oh, man. I'm three years sober, and I go up to that same sponsor, and I said, where is she? He said, well, God's getting her ready. I said, you know, I'm three years sober. If it takes God that long to get her ready, I don't know that I want her. <laughs> So he changed it. He said, maybe God's getting you ready. <laughs> well, I kind of started dating in NAA, and I wasn't, I wasn't really looking for Miss Wright. I guess I was looking for Miss Wright now. Miss Just for Today. And, uh, <laughs> and as a result of that, I really heard a lot of people, a lot of women. And uh, my sponsor finally pulled me aside. He said, you know, he said, Lon, men that come in Alcoholics Anonymous and they start, or excuse me, or, yeah, he said, men that come in and they sleep around with all these 
uh, excuse me, excuse me, women that come in Alcoholics Anonymous, so they sleep around with all, all these guys. They call them sluts. And he said, but for some reason, these guys that come in and sleep around with all these women, they're like these macho studs. And he said, that's a false narrative. He said, you're nothing but a slut. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but it gave me the opportunity to look at that. It gave me the opportunity to look at and how my behavior was in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that it uh, it wasn't a safe place. I didn't make it a safe place for some people. And Alcoholics Anonymous needs to be a safe place for everybody. Everybody that comes in. So I'm eight years sober, and I decide to move to Jacksonville, Florida. I moved to Jacksonville, Florida. You know, AA's the same everywhere. AA's different everywhere you go. It's still very much the same. But I moved to Jacksonville, Florida. They didn't do AA right at all. <laughs> I was surprised that someone stayed sober as long as I had. And I felt it was my job <laughs> to bring the truth to Florida. But they didn't want to hear the truth. Oh, I was so mad. I would call my sponsor up. And in, in, in Jacksonville... In Texas, we, we give the chips away at the beginning of the meetings. See, a lot of the thought process behind that, you give the chips away at the beginning, you find out who's new. And maybe you can sometimes direct a topic towards that, towards that newcomer. And and, and you get to go up and, and um, meet them right after the meeting. Of course, you can still do that, I guess, at, 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 when you do it at the end. But in Jacksonville, they give the chips away at the end of the meetings. I thought, oh, that's just a horrible idea. <laughs> They would sometimes open meetings in Alcoholics Anonymous in Jacksonville, Florida, and ask for a topic. I was always taught when you were a chairperson, you brought a topic to the meeting. I thought, what are you doing opening the sickest person out there with a topic? I would call my sponsor and complain, and after about six months, I, he said, let me ask you something, Lana. Are they staying sober? And I said, Yeah. <laughs> He said, well, you better learn to do it like they're doing it because you're not going to stay sober if you, if you don't. And you know what I did? I went to 90 meetings in 90 days. I didn't like the way the intergroup was all uh, running, so I got involved in the intergroup. I didn't like the way their area was running, so I got involved in the area. And I've been there a long time. Gosh, I've been there, what, 20? No, more than 20, 30 years. I've been there 30 years. Wow. And I got to tell you, it's an awesome, they do Alcoholics Anonymous awesome there. And then I would look back and I think of the changes they made over the years. Not many. <laughs> Not many. But I changed. I changed. And, and I still love Alcoholics Anonymous and living there. I, I still love Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, so I moved to Jacksonville. I finally found, uh, uh, finally found my future wife. Um, I was, uh, I think I was about nine, ten years sober. She was five years sober. We got married. Uh, unfortunately, it was short-lived. It lasted about six years. We did have a son out of the marriage. Um, she had started using prescription drugs. And uh, we got divorced. I ended up getting custody of my son uh, when he was three and a half. And I, I had sole custody of him. He's 26 now from when he graduated. Um, 
But I was terrified because I was the one that was involved. I was in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know how I was going to do that. But, you know, God found a way to, for me to do that. My mom watched them on Monday nights when I went to my home group. Her husband watched them on Friday nights. When I went to a men's meeting, I saw sponsees on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And then every other weekend, my, my uh, ex-wife had them. And then uh, we did stuff the weekends I had them. And my son, 26 years old, hadn't been to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, he hadn't been to a meeting because I just don't bring him to those meetings. I think there's a lot of things that people say in those meetings that a little three, four, five, six, seven-year-old doesn't need to hear. And I just chose not to take them there. Um, I don't, I'm not discouraging anybody that does. It was just something I, as a choice I made with my son. But uh, I ended up, I ended up um, single, not dating around the whole time. I didn't want women coming in and out of his life. Um, we got into high school. I started dating. It was very uncomfortable. Gosh, you don't date for a long period of time, then you want to start dating. It's like AA dates are so weird. <laughs> they are so weird. I mean, you know, you know, what's the AA date? You know, you maybe go to a movie, a meeting, and you take her at home and hold hands, say the Lord's Prayer. You know. <laughs> in in uh, 2015. Um, I, uh, I had a pretty severe stroke, um, and I was up until that point, I was dating a girl, and we were getting pretty close, but before that, before my stroke, I mean, she moved up to Fernandina, which is a ways away, and we kind of stopped seeing each other. Well, I had the stroke, and then she came to the hospital and, and got my, <laughs> back into my life. I had the stroke like the end of July in 2015, and um, she came back, moved back, and said she wants to marry, so we got married in December. Um... And I know today that after that stroke, I was a different person. Um, and in March, she said, woke up one morning and said, I don't want to be married anymore. And at first, I was very hurt and I was very resentful. And and uh, I, I can't even realize I'm not that person that she fell in love with prior to me having that stroke. And when she came back into my life because uh, I had the stroke, she didn't notice the changes that were made until after we uh, after we got married. Um, so she left and I was devastated. I was hurt. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, but I guess God knew, um, God moved somebody, this girl up from Cape Coral. She came to my home group and I was like, wow. <laughs> so because I was involved in service for years and years and years in the spirit of rotation, I started dating her and remarried. <laughs> she hates when I say that. <laughs> um, but being married in Alcoholics Anonymous with both people in Alcoholics Anonymous is still tough. It's still tough for me not to tell her to call her sponsor. <laughs> Boy, does she need to. But probably not as much as I need to call mine, <laughs> which she lets me know about. <laughs> I love her to pieces, though. She's a light of my life. She's my heart. She didn't know me before the stroke, so she can't complain. <laughs> um, a couple other things I just wanna I wanna show you. There was a. 
think it was in, in 1607. That's the, that's a year, 1607. There was a there was a play by Shakespeare. And in this play, there's a line. Oh God, that man would put an enemy in his mouth to steal away his brain, and that he may rejoice, pleasure, revel in applause as we transform ourselves into beasts. I've got to tell you, that was me when I drank alcohol. When I read that, I thought, man, that is me. That is me, and they... He wrote about me in 1607. <laughs> and there's a lot of me's in here. Because I know if you're a lot like me, if you drink a lot like me, you can identify with that kind of, that kind of, that sentence in a play. And I look at my life today and think, man, it's just amazing how my life has become. It's It's amazing. The transformation of my life. You know, I remember living in Texas. We go through so many things, and growing up in Alcoholics Anonymous, I came in at 22, so I literally grew up, grew up in Alcoholics Anonymous. Not that I'm there yet. Um, but I remember living in Texas. I got a 1986 Chevy Silverado pickup. That was the first pickup truck, brand new pickup truck I ever had. And I was sober a couple of years, and I bought this truck. I sobered up in 84. I bought this truck in 86. And, man, it was candy apple red. Now, if you live in Texas... A, a, a pickup truck is kind of a sports car, okay? I mean, if you live in Texas, you got to have a pickup. So I get this red pickup truck, man, and it was nice looking. Well, every week, because I wasn't drinking, I was able to do stuff to this truck. So I got the windows tinted. I got big tires. I got chrome on the back. I got chrome grill on the front. I had a chrome and light bars and... And every week I was adding something to this. And that thing looking good. I mean, I was getting looks. People were, man. So one morning, I probably spent a lot of money on this car just over a period of time. And so one Saturday morning, hot summer morning, 108 degrees outside, and I'm thinking it's a good idea to wash my truck. So I get out there, and I wash my truck, and I wax my truck, and I got to tell you, this thing is looking good. Oh, man, it's looking good. Candy apple red. I got chrome everywhere, all of it shining. I thought, wow. Well, I got to get out and drive this thing. Now, when I got out to drive this thing, I was very disappointed at how dark I tinted the windows because people couldn't see you and who was driving. <laughs> and so it's a summer day, and i got to roll the windows down so people can see who's driving. I mean, i got to turn the AC up high, 108 degrees outside. i got the windows rolled down, and people give me thumbs up, and I'm thinking, man, this is it. I have a ride. This is life. But see, I got looking at the inside of the truck. The inside of the truck I had McDonald's bags and Wendy's bags shoved underneath the seat. You know, my ashtray was overflowing, and I had ashes all over the uh, all over the floorboard. My my dashboard is all dusty. But as I'm driving down the road, I'm thinking, man, this is my life right here. Everything on the outside to blow you away, and the inside's all trashed out. And in the workshop, that's what he was talking about. Of we got the rest of these steps to clear that stuff out. I I don't know about you, but I used to, I used to, gosh, if you guys don't, if you guys remember the 80s, remember the gold nugget rings and the gold, I'm a, boy, if you had a lot of, lot of gold nugget rings, I don't know, in Texas, so I got all this stuff. I mean, I got this sober. I'm not spending any money on alcohol and stuff. I'm sober. I'm single. Man, my heart, hand is hard to lift up sometimes to shake people's hand. You know, I, I'd have to look up like this because I had so much gold around my neck. 
You know, I would add up how much I was before I went to the meeting, you know, <laughs> putting that gold chain on. Look at that. $2,700.13. You know? And feeling like that changed me inside. But the process of working the steps changes me inside where I don't have to have that stuff on the outside to make me okay. And I don't, I don't, I don't look any different way a person that does have that stuff on the outside. I'm talking about me. I'm talking about the, the, the thought process that I was going through, you know? I was talking about the things that I thought was important for a long period of time. And I find they're not that important today. And um, in closing, there's a couple of stories. There's a story of a little five-year-old boy. He goes up to his dad, and he asks his dad if... Uh, he said, he goes up to dad, he said, hey, dad, can we go out and fly a kite? And the dad's busy at the desk at his office, and he said, not right now, son. i got a lot of things to do. I mean, don't bother me. And the little boy walks away. And about two minutes later, he comes back, and he said, well, Daddy, can we go outside and, and play with my trucks? And he tells the little five-year-old, look, son. said, I told you, i got a lot of things to do. Right now, I can't play, but I'll play later. And the little boy goes away, and he comes back in like two minutes. And he said, well, Dad, can we can get outside and play with my wagon? Well, this time the father's irate and he has this map of the world on his, on his desk and he picks up this map and he tears it up into a whole bunch of little tiny pieces. He said, son, this is a map of the world. When you get the map put together, come back and see me. We'll do something. And the boy goes away and he comes back about three minutes later and he brings his dad out and this kid's got the map all put together. And the father's like, and he's like, son, that's... The, that's amazing. How did you get this map of the world put together so quick? And he said, well, Daddy, he said, on the back of this map, there's a man. And when you put the man together, the world goes together. Gosh, and that's what Alcoholics Anonymous has done for me. That's what it's done for me. I, I woke up in the mornings for years and years, not wanting to be alive, not wanting to be near you guys. And, and you guys are the most precious thing in my heart today. And the people in my life, beyond measure, the most precious things in my heart today. And in closing, there's a quote from Paul Caudell that states that there's not one of my brothers that I can do without. In the heart of the meanest miser, the most squalid prostitute, the most miserable drunkard, there is an immortal soul with holy aspirations. Deprived of daylight, they worship in the night. I hear him speaking when we're speaking. And I hear him weeping when we're praying. We need them all, and they need us. Just as, the, as many as the stars in the heavens and the power of calculation is beyond our reckoning, we need them all in our praise of God. See, there's not one living being, even though he may scarcely give forth his light, that we do not need in that sacred apex where we utter together the Our Father. Thank you, guys.